I begin today, I want to say thank you uh, to the many people that contributed to my banana bread addiction this week. Uh, I had no realization or anticipation when I made the introduction that I did last week that I would get so much banana bread, but I was a, it was a definite win for me. So to begin today, I'd like to say this, I love new trucks. See if we can keep this going here. Uh, but uh, thank you for that. Love you guys, and uh, it's good to be loved. Amen? Deuteronomy chapter 5, my title for you today is, What is the value of life? What is the value of life? And I cashed in a lot of chips last week and took you for a good, I don't know, hour and 20 minutes, it felt like or so. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cash some chips back in. And, and try to forego any introduction or exordium this morning and invite you to go straight to our first point so I can earn back some of the favor that I robbed you of last week. You okay with that? All right. So our first point this morning, getting straight to work in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, is this. What does the Bible say about humankind? That's the question that I want to begin with under our title, what is the value of human life? If we're going to appreciate this commandment from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, then we're going to have to ask some preliminary questions in order to get to a proper conclusion. And I believe that begins with this. What does the Bible say about humankind? So first and foremost, church, let's begin there. With the spiritual and philosophical background that supports this commandment, namely, what the Bible says about humanity in general. We can start in the book of beginnings, which is the book of Genesis. When we open the Bible to the first book, the book of Genesis, we are immediately encountered by these verses, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. They read like this, let us make man in our image and our likeness. One of the first indicators, other than Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says that God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit was hovering over the deep. One of the first verses that we have in the Bible that indicates to us that God is one and yet a trinity. Let us make man in our image and likeness. We have an indication there that there's an inter-Trinitarian conversation happening. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are saying, let us make man in our image and likeness. And then verses 27 and 28 follow. They're going to come up here on the screen. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here, church, in creation, this creation account again from Genesis chapter 1, we see that there is a humanity that has a built-in value system. A built-in value system, not because of itself, but rather because of who God is. Amen? 
And what he did when he created them, namely, he blessed them with his image and likeness. Among other ways, we can see this intellectually as we think, examine, and critique. We can see this emotionally as we possess the ability to sympathize and to love. We can see this relationally as we have the capacity to relate to one another and, of course, to God. And we see this functionally as we work and fulfill the roles that God has called us to fulfill that help to sustain and to keep our world. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5 says, You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In Psalm 139, verse 14, it says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Church, I have a few other thoughts that I want to share with you under this question, but I want you to hear what I have covered thus far in Genesis, in Psalm 8, and Psalm 139. What I've covered this far says this. When God made you, you were created with value. And you were created with value not because of something intrinsic, not because of something about you yourself, but because of what God has done. So the Bible has a lot to say about humanity. In particular, what we've noticed this morning so far is that it testifies to that intrinsic value as being God's creation in his image and in his likeness. The point that I'm making here is simple. The reason man, follow me here, the reason man is forbidden to murder isn't simply because murder is an affront to that person, his or her family, and the society to which they belong, but also because murder is an affront and an insult to our creator God who made us in his image and likeness. We don't hesitate to murder one another simply because we don't want to get caught, but because murdering someone is to deface the image and likeness of God. Now, we've established that point. Let's continue to our next point. What is murder? What is, in fact, murder? Chapter 5, verse 17 of Deuteronomy again says very simply, You shall not what? Murder. murder. You shall not what? Murder. murder. And this is, an, this is an appropriate question, I think, after we've just discussed that first spiritual and philosophical point, namely, what is the value of us? of man, of humankind, because the commandment says you shall not murder. So I want to say, first and foremost, that if we do a little linguistic work, I hope that you'll notice what the commandment doesn't say. We do a little bit of linguistic work. We note very quickly that the commandment doesn't say in Deuteronomy 5.17, you shall not kill. It's actually not what it says. It says you shall not Murder doesn't say you shall not kill, but rather you shall not murder. You see, the word that's used is a word that describes killing in a premeditated sense. Or perhaps 
that has happened accidentally, something that we would constitute as manslaughter. Now, each of these requires a different legislative approach, and we'll get to that eventually in Deuteronomy as we move forward and progress through the book. But for now, what I want you to acknowledge is this. Deuteronomy 5.17 does not say you shall not kill. It says you shall not murder. One author writes this, and I quote, The Hebrew term used in the sixth commandment is ratzah, but six other Hebrew words are used in reference of killing. In another commentary by Peter Craigie, it says this, and I quote, This commandment deals specifically with murder and not with all forms of taking life. So first of all, when we do our due diligence and we do our linguistic work, we find very quickly that murder isn't some, simply any kinds of killing, as we might see in wartime, for example, but the taking of life specifically. We're talking about murder. Secondly, let's use the analogy of faith. Let's use the analogy of faith. After we do our linguistic work, let's do a little bit of analogy of faith. Now, the analogy of faith is an interpretive method that essentially says, since the word of God is inspired by God from Genesis to Revelation and is equally valuable, we should use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Let me say that again. We should use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So sometimes we come against scriptures that might be difficult. On Wednesday nights, we just went through an eight- or nine-part series, difficult texts. And, and we went through those difficult texts, and what we learned is that oftentimes when we come against a scripture that is hard for us to interpret, there's another scripture that's very clear that helps us understand it. So we need to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Passages here can help us understand passages there. And the clearer passages can clarify the more challenging passages. And the teaching in one spot can firm up our comprehension of a teaching in another spot. So follow me here. When we do this, we see that there is a different understanding from murder to killing, whether premeditated or accidental. But once we disrespect the image of God and the likeness of God. In our fellow humans, murder can happen in a variety of ways. We see that even today, and we're going to get into this a little more deeply, but follow me here. Drugs and drug dealers. As far as God's word is concerned, they're culpable for murder. They may not literally put a knife in someone or a bullet in someone and end their life, but they are participating in something that inevitably leads to someone's demise. And that person is made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore, in the Bible's perspective, they are culpable for a sin that they, in all likelihood, are not even cognizant of. But God is because he takes the value of human life very seriously. There are people who perpetrate acts of violence, regardless of whether it's happening in a target or in the streets or in their kitchen against their own family members. 
they are guilty of murder. Sometimes people are so filled with hate and rage that they beat on someone and the only reason they aren't charged with murder is because their efforts are thwarted by a good Samaritan. Had they had their way, had they been given the allowance to finish the job, they would have. And in our legal system, we might categorize their efforts differently because they are a first-time offender or their efforts to actually end the person's life were thwarted, as I said, by a good Samaritan perhaps, but in God's eyes, they're murderers. Or what about the people who decide to end the life of their unborn child? They are culpable for murder too. Leviticus 18.21 says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. Moloch was a foreign god who was honored by the sacrifice of children. Palestinian excavations have revealed to us the skeletons of infants found at the altars of pagan gods. Proving the ancient practice of giving up one's child as a sacrifice to a god. Today, children are still being sacrificed. Last year, Laura and I had a meeting with a ministry that we support in helping women who are struggling with the decision of abortion. And we learned that in Florida alone last year, there were 80,000 abortions. In Florida alone. We believe that Florida is a more conservative state, and we would be right, but there are states very close to Florida that actually have a stricter policy on abortion. The reality of the matter is, in ancient times, children were sacrificed. Today, they're still being sacrificed. They're being sacrificed to the God of career, to the God of convenience, to the God of the so-called idea of bodily choice. You can call it what you like, but it's still murder. And it's an embarrassment and a tragedy that so many Christians do not fall on this very clear issue where they ought to. If we look a little further into the New Testament, we come into the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew. He ties murder to hate and says that since one leads inevitably to the other, if you're full of hate, you're already a murderer. Let me read the text to you. You have heard, Jesus says, that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, you know, an insult, a curse, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is taking the commandment and saying, it is not enough for you not to kill someone. That is the letter of the law. The spirit of the law is this. You must, be, you must not be filled with the hate that inevitably leads to murder. You cannot manage. You cannot negotiate. You cannot temper hate. You must not have hate. The apostle John candidly says this in 1 John 3, 15, 
1 John 3.15, the Apostle John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I don't know if we can get any more succinct as that. If you hate your brother, you are a murderer. And you know, John says, that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We have, as Christians, a philosophy of love. Our philosophy is not only articulated by our Savior, but it is demonstrated by our Savior. Amen? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. In John 3.16. But then in John chapter 10, Jesus himself says, I lay down my life of my own accord, only to take it back up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down for my sheep. In that beautiful and poetic passage of Jesus and his teaching of his coming to save his sheep, he is telling us that love demonstrates itself in sacrifice. There is no place for hate in the Christian philosophy. You can hate, but you gotta hate sin. (laughs) You can hate, but you gotta hate evil. You can hate, but you gotta hate what is antichrist. We must love the lost. We must love and demonstrate the love of those who are in Christ but not walking with Christ the way that they ought to rather than falling into a convenient form of judgment when we wag our finger at people and say, look at them not walking the walk that they should walk, and instead we ought to be merciful, encouraging, convicting, rather than walking in the footsteps that so many murderers walked in before they killed the first time. Church, while killing and murder aren't considered synonymous in the Bible, it isn't easy or as easy as simply saying, well, I've never driven a knife through someone. It's more complicated than that. In the biblical teaching, it isn't just you ending someone's life. Murder begins in your heart. Some of us worship on Sunday, and had we have the real opportunity on Monday morning on the 826, we could do this. We could do this thing. The reality of the matter is in the course of a week, we, we fall into this, into this trap, don't we, church? If we really examined ourselves, maybe we haven't ended someone's life. Maybe we haven't maliciously ended someone's life. But, but, but what about our attitude? What about our heart in the matter? Have we approached people with this hate, this disdain, I think if you and I were honest with ourselves, we could very readily confess that we've been guilty of this on more than one occasion. Thirdly, I want you to think about this. Not only what the Bible has to say about humanity and what is murder in the first place, but lastly, once we've talked about murder, what are the biblical consequences of murder? 
Since murder is described here in the Bible and delineated down a very specific explanation and definition, what are the consequences of that murder? This is our third and final point. If men and women are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, according to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and if murder is outlawed by God's word, as we've seen in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, then what are the biblical consequences of murder? In other words, what does the Bible say about the consequences that are awaiting someone who commits murder? So let me share with you a couple of thoughts. First, it says that justice must be accurate and fair. Justice must be accurate and and fair. As early as Genesis, this issue is addressed, the issue of murder. Not to mention other reference that appear throughout the Bible. I'm going to share one of them with you, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, you might be surprised to hear, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. Now, in the Christian paradigm of justice and law, capital punishment is an expectation. If you kill someone, the book of Genesis says, you need to anticipate this reality. You're going to die soon. Because by murdering someone, you have, are you listening? You forfeit your life. You you forfeit your life. You forfeit the right to live because you've ended somebody else's life. And today, well, today people are on death row for an eternity. Romans chapter 13 says something very similar to this, which is an interesting contribution to the topic of capital punishment because... Paul speaks in Romans chapter 13 during a time when an ungodly government is ruling the world, namely Rome. And he says, if you do bad, if you do evil, I'm warning you, he does not bear the sword in vain. Which is to say, capital punishment was an expectation of people who lived evil and murderous lives. In Numbers chapter 35, verse 31. In Numbers chapter 35, verse 31, it says, You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer. You shall accept no ransom, (coughs) excuse me, for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. When someone was found guilty of murder, there was no negotiation to be had. Capital punishment was the expectation. So justice must be accurate and it must be fair. Furthermore, secondly, I want you to note that justice must be equitable. Justice must be equitable. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime. In the Bible, the punishment must fit the crime. And I know that most of you are very familiar with that passage in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, where Moses is writing from the Lord to the judges. And he says, you shall judge fairly 
And it shall be eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. You remember that, right? And the reason that is is because someone coming to my house and, 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 and stealing my television is not to be put to death. That's not equitable. That's not a fair punishment. That punishment does not fit the crime. But what we're seeing today and what we saw begin to unravel even in the Bible is part of the problem in regards to the rise of criminality in society is the punishments that were prescribed for crimes were being halted. I think if you had the guts to be honest about the situation right now, you survey our lives, our city, our country, I think you would be hard-pressed not to say if we started punishing criminals and taking crime seriously, we wouldn't have the rampant disease that's running across our country right now. In our country, we currently have nearly two million prisoners incarcerated. Two million, there are countries with fewer people than that. And in fact, that is a decrease, which is incredibly troublesome. That's actually a decrease over the past five or six years. And you know why it's a decrease? Because the criminal justice system is a joke. We've got so many criminals because we don't actually punish criminals the way criminals ought to be punished that we're letting them out. Ow, we've had this conversation. They're letting them out. And the people who are on the street committing crimes not being prosecuted. So, so why are the numbers going down? Well, you know what statistics do. They're, they're incredible. You can make up a statistic. Well, you look at numbers, you say, well, technically, there's on a, we're on a decline. We don't have as many prisoners in the United States of America as we have in the previous. Yeah, but come on. If you were honest with yourself, if we were honest with each other, crime is not going down. Criminality is not going down. It's recklessly high. And believe it or not, the number is down. And as difficult as that might be to accept, it's a fact. But crime is up. And of course, recidivism, which is the tendency of criminals to be rearrested for crimes, is almost at 70%, which means in a group of 10 guys, seven of them are going back to jail. So not only do we have a farce for a justice system, it's so ineffective that seven out of ten guys that go to jail end up back in jail. But just as there can be a perversion of justice today, so there could be a perversion of justice in antiquity. And so there are scriptures to help us with accuracy and fairness and equity within the system to protect those who are innocent from being booked for crimes they didn't commit, but also from properly prosecuting those who did commit the crimes. Let me give you a couple of uh, examples by this. If death occurred, 
If death occurred first, the community decided whether it was murder or manslaughter. In the Bible, there was a decision to be made. Is it manslaughter or is it murder? Murder is that premeditated thing, right? Is it murder in the first or the second or the third? It's murder. That's a different category. Manslaughter is when life is taken, but it wasn't intentional. And therefore, when you come to Deuteronomy chapter 19, for example, they had what was called cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were cities that were relegated for those people, designated for those people who were involved in what was considered criminal, but were not malicious. So for example, uh, we go to the range. Uh, Gary Hamilton's here today. Gary's and Ada are, are friends of ours and uh, we're part of our church for a long, long time. Many of you don't know them, but that's who they are. And Gary and I go to the range, and we're practicing, and, and, and I'm trying to be Billy the Kid, and so I'm whipping around my gun, and, and, and maybe, maybe a bullet goes off and kills Gary. Lord forbid. Don't go to the range with Joe, yeah. I was not being malicious in my intent, but Ada, Ada's very mad at me for this. Right, Ada? Rightly so. Ada's very mad at me for this, and as a consequence, I have a place that I can move to, to remove myself from the equation of difficult emotions, difficult feelings, and so on. So the first thing that had to be done was this. Is it murder or manslaughter? That had to be decided. Secondly, secondly, the death penalty was only enforced after multiple witnesses guaranteed the verdict. So not only did it have to be determined, first of all, whether it was murder or manslaughter, once that was determined, it could only be established with the enforcement of the death penalty once multiple witnesses guaranteed the verdict. Numbers chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. Numbers 35, verse 30 says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall not be put to death on the evidence, it shall only be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. Witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. This is God's law. One witness was not sufficient for the death penalty. And this is for obvious reasons. For one, there could be insufficient evidence. But for another reason, there might be a personal vendetta of that so-called witness against the person who was guilty of the so-called crime. In the reality, church, what we see under this topic is this. God takes human life very seriously. And there are consequences in the word of God that are to be played out when a life is taken maliciously by murder. And so to close, let me say this. Murder is wrong and sinful, but not because of our own laws, not because of our own justice system, not because of our own mores, Murder is wrong because God made life. And when God made life, 
He made man and woman in his image and likeness, and therefore, life is precious, and life is valuable. Regardless of creed or color, regardless of ethnicity or ethic, the Christian is to be someone who has respect for life because we are made in the image and likeness of God. When God says, you shall not murder, he was saying more than simply, don't kill. He was saying, don't go down the path of hate. Check your heart. Examine how you feel about people. Examine your mode when it comes to consideration of others, especially those we disagree with. I want to finish with three quick principles. Here they are. Number one, in view of everything that we've covered today, I want to share with you these three thoughts. Number one, Christians should regain their their morale on matters of life and death. Christians should regain their morale on matters of life and death. The politics in our country, whether invited or uninvited, have crept into the church. And the only thing that should be guiding the church is the word of God. We got to stop this nonsense of, of people who keep standing up within different po- political persuasions and saying, well, I'm this, but I believe in... No, that's not the way it works, man. If you would be this, then you cannot be that. We must take a stand, regain the morale that we ought to have on matters of life and death. When it comes to matters of life and death, no one should feel as passionate and as clear as Christians. Secondly, Christians should speak openly and honestly on their persuasion or position, excuse me. Christians should speak openly and honestly about their position on matters of life and death. Don't let anybody make you feel bad about the position you, you, you hold. Don't make any or allow anyone to make you feel bad about being pro-life and pro-punishment. Well, how can you be pro-life and pro-punishment? Well, that guy's a murderer. Easy. The reality of the matter is the philosophical arguments that most people make to try to put us in a corner are horrible. They would never fly in a class of logic. But they do on CNN. But any, I mean, you know, I mean, a class of logic or CNN, that's like, come on. We're not expecting a whole lot of logic from some of these news outlets, are we? But I don't really care what the news outlets say. All I care about is what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says we should regain our morale on issues of life and death. And what's more, we should be honest about the positions we hold. Now, honesty includes truth and love, doesn't it? It doesn't mean we have to be ugly and wave signs at people. It doesn't mean we have to insult them and call them names. 
And it might mean, hear me when I say this, it might mean that God uses you to help the healing process for someone who's been through these decisions already. God can heal, and God, God can forgive, and we have to be willing to play that role. Thirdly, Christians should support the biblical consequences that criminals invite upon themselves for the crimes that they commit. Christians should support the biblical consequences that criminals invite upon themselves for the crimes that they commit. 